Hi everybody, welcome back to Vinyl Conflict. We are here to discuss two albums for the early 2000s. My name's Craig, I'm going to be hosting this particular episode. I've got Jamie here, say hello Jamie. Hello Jamie. And Daniel's here as well. Hello. First things first, for this half we are going to discuss the Maroon 5 album Songs About Jane and I'm going to let Jamie take us through the usual kind of details about that. So take it away Jamie. Alrighty, so we've got two debut albums that we're going to be talking about tonight. The first one, which is Songs About Jane by Maroon 5, which was initially released in 2002 in the US, June the 25th, 2002. And it was not initially a very successful record. It actually had to go through to run in the mill in terms of singles. It was internationally re-released, whatever that means, just over a year later, in October 2003 where it became an absolutely massive success, which is quite weird, considering most people that know this album know it as being a huge mega hit, but actually when it was first released, it wasn't really a hit at all, which is quite cool. The album spawned five singles. Every single one of them are absolute bangers as well. There's probably nobody my age that doesn't know about Maroon 5 because of these singles, because they were massive, massive hits. It's since with the singles in the record being out, it sold over 10 million copies by 2007. And I had to be like to see how many records it's actually sold over the years. The upper estimate is about 30 million records Oof. as of 2020. Mm. I, it shifted a few. I know loads of people that know this really well and stuff because of the singles. And it is called Songs About Jane because Adam Levine was pining after his ex-bird. Her name was Jane Herman. So he wrote an album full of songs about her, which is quite cool. It's a nice wee homage to his ex, but it's also kind of weird because he wrote a whole album about his ex. That mate, get it. <laughs> <laughs> so we've got some details there. As usual, we'll talk about the tunes that we liked. Daniel, do you want to maybe start us off with that, mate? What stood out for you on this? Aye, quite happily. So my favourite song on here, and it was a good album overall, but this was quite an easy choice for me, it was the song Must Get Out. I would say that when they were writing this song, it was, can we try and sound a bit like the Beatles? It's got that classic Beatles-style descending chord progression. It's a really nice bit of melancholy. I've spoke kind of at length on this podcast before about how I like things that have a bit of that melancholy feel to them. It's got that 90s alternative and adult contemporary vibe to it. And as well as that, I'm also a sucker for anything that stands out on an album, as long as it stands out in a good way. And I think among the rest of the album, where there's a lot of funk and soul-influenced pop on here, this was more of just a straightforward pop ballad, which I think gave it a touch more depth and more meaning. Must get out, far and away my favourite song on the album. Good call, mate. Aye, cheers for that, Daniel. Jamie, do you agree, or is there something else for you? It's interesting that you bring that one up, because it was the fifth of the five singles. Mm-hmm. When you look at this track listing, a solid half of the album pretty much is singles, which is really rare. Must Get Out is not really known as a single. As a single, it came out three years after or four years after the initial release. Mm-hmm. So people don't really think about it as a single, but there's another track on it. It's just before it called The Sun and then Must Get Out. They're late bangers in the album. Aye. There's quite a few songs on this album that they really take their time to come out. I'll get to my favourite in a wee minute, but Must Get Out as a ballad and be released as a single was really weird because if you think about what was about in 2002, it was like, by the way, by Red Hot Chili Peppers, there was like Nickelback, guitar was in vogue mm-hmm. in the charts, it was like loads of guitar bands, and then these guys came out with a blue-eyed soul ballad, which is really weird, but yeah, it's a cracking tune. It ain't my favourite, but it is one of my favourites on the album for sure, but to get to my favourite, because I know you are a dying to hear it, 
my favourite track on this album by far and away is Sunday Morning. I absolutely love that track. Mm-hmm. It's just dead relaxed, it's dead happy. I don't know if you've ever seen the music video, but it's Japanese karaoke businessmen just singing the tune. It's great. Yeah, that sounds amazing. It's just a really nice, we feel good track. It's dead jazzy. It's a 2 5 1 chord progression, which is just classic jazz over the back. Mm-hmm. It's quite a nice, light hearted tune, and it's got really nice lyrics. And, you know, I'm not a big lyrics guy. Melody's great. The lyrics are dead nice. It's just a nice package. It makes me feel all warm and fuzzy when I hear it. An interesting wee aside, actually, that song, there was a demo version of it, and it's not that often that you hear a demo version of a track that made it onto an album where the demo is a million miles better than the actual song that ended up on the album. Yeah. There's a couple of bits in the demo that are stinking, like the drums sound dead fake. We'll talk about this a bit more in production value, but the drums in particular, but the drums in the demo for Sunday Morning Sound Dead Kid On, but there is a ripping saxophone solo in it. <laughs> An absolute nailer air sax solo. Nice. I'm raging that it never made it onto the final track, but if anybody's listening and they know Sunday Morning quite well, go onto YouTube and listen to the demo version of it. It'll blow your slippers right off. <laughs> it's a topper. It's certainly on my list. I love a sax solo. It's a nailer of a sax solo, man. You can tell they've slipped a guy a tenner. I'm like, all right, mate. <laughs> Why to play a sax solo or that? And he's like, I've been waiting my whole life to play on this like, C major 251. He's like, all right, let's go. <laughs> it's brilliant. It's such a good solo. It's a great tune. It's nice, and it's kind of the opposite of quite a lot of the stuff that was out and about at that time. It was all like your Nickelbacks singing about photographs and that. So these guys came out with a nice fluffy wee tune. It's a belter. Nice. Thanks, Jamie, man. It's funny, you two guys have highlighted my two and three of this album. Both of these tunes were fine for my number one spot. I actually bought Sunday Morning when it came out. Mm-hmm. I bought the CD single of Sunday Morning. And as it, the video's brilliant, the song's brilliant. The other one, the name of which has completely escaped my mind, Must Get Out. Must Get Out was on the loop in Next in East Bride when I worked there. <laughs> I didn't realise it was on this album. I heard it and I instantly was back behind the till. <laughs> it was weird, man. Weird flashback. Great song. Dead uplifting. But neither of the two of them for me compared to She Will Be Loved. Aye. Mm-hmm. It's a tune, mate. It's an absolute tune. It's an utter belted song. And I think it's got that melancholy, dead, bittersweet thing that you were talking about, Daniel, about Must Get Out. Yeah. Again, a great video. The vocal performance on it, and we'll talk about this in production, but there's maybe a wee bit of auto-tune sneaking in there. But that high note in the chorus is just gold, man. Chicken soup for the soul. Aye, it's a classic. Aye, it's a great tune. I have a dead strong feeling that we're going to talk about this a lot more when we talk about the Killers album in part two, but it's one of these songs where anybody that had picked up a guitar at that time had learned, you know, the wee riff. Yeah. Everybody knew it. Nobody could sing it, though. Because Adam Levine has got one hell of an upper range, by the way. Yeah. Unbelievable. Aye. Aye, you're right. When the production value bit, we'll talk about a wee sneaky bit or two of the auto-tune. But <laughs> it's definitely there, but it's a great song. The music video as well, I don't know if you know this, is based on The Graduate. Oh, I didn't know that. The music video is like a retelling of The Graduate in music video form in under four minutes. Right. Streaming at your telly and MTV or whatever it is. But if you go back and watch it, you'll be like, oh, aye, that's The Graduate. I must have been a bit busy watching Bob the Builder when this album came out. Because <laughs> you have... The tweenies. <laughs> I described these music videos at length. And I'm going, man, I was six. Aye. Uh, I didn't catch any of this. Were you six in 2002, man? It makes me feel dead old. <laughs> I was, I Born in 1996. I had enough money in 2002 to buy this record for myself. <laughs> 
I'm really glad. I thought you were going to say to buy a six-year-old. <laughs> and I was going to say, I don't know what, like, what country trades in that, but I would probably advise not going there. I had enough money to buy a six-year-old 2002. They were the days. <laughs> We've said too much. Aye. Funny you mentioning about the guitar, because this album came out in Europe and the UK pretty much the month I started playing. And She Will Be Loved was one of the first tunes that we, I think it's a C minor, a B flat. Beautiful, man. Lovely wee piece. It sounds brilliant, but it's actually quite simple. Mm-hmm. I love that. I bought the CD singles of this as well. Don't know how I never bought the album, but I had all the CD singles. There was a brilliant acoustic version of She Will Be Loved. And actually, there's less places to hide for Adam Levine's voice in this acoustic version. It's dead raw, dead simple. He's got the pipes. He has got the pipes. Oh, aye. In terms of modern pop performers, I think he's quite underrated. I think it's maybe because of the music that they've done since. Mm-hmm. Aye. As a performer, he's really underrated. He's got an amazing range. He's got pipes, man, for sure. He's got a set of pipes on him. Definitely. All right, we've covered the highlights there. Let's get to the low lights. The shite lights. <laughs> the low shites, if you will. What did we know enjoy, guys? Right, so I'm coming straight out the gate, and I'm going straight for a song called Tangled. Yeah. Which I believe is track three. Five. Is it really? Yeah. Hold on. I think I might be getting myself mixed up. What the bus? Shiver's track three. Aye, it's Shiver. It's no Tangled. Right. Tangled's all right. It's also on my list. It's Shiver. Obviously, I dislike it that much that I can't even remember what the track's called. All right. I just don't like it. I have a few reasons why I don't like it, but one of the reasons I don't like it is because we speak about openers quite a lot, but Harder to Breathe is a beltery an opener. Yeah. It's a really, really strong opener. Aye. And it's quite different to the rest of the tracks. It's heavier, I'm not going to say it's heavy, but it's heavier than the rest of the tracks on this album. And I think it kind of sets you up for a wee bit of like, ah, this is another guitar band. And then by track eight, it's like, actually not, here's some jazz. Mm -hmm. After that, it's This Love, which was a super turbo mega single. And then it's just like, ah, shiver, there you go, have a wee bit of this. This weird sounding sitar thing, and then it just moves on. Every time I hear the start of that song, instant skip. Mm -hmm. Right. I don't think it's as strong a song to follow up for the two absolute belters harder to breathe and in this love. It's in a funny place. Aye, it's in a funny place, but it's also not a great song. And that weird sitar-influenced, really chromatic guitar line rips my knitting every time I hear it. I'm just like, ugh, turn it off. Do you not like it? No, I don't. I appreciate the fact that it's a bit different. Aye. But it annoys me every time I hear it. I'm like, no, off with you, skip. <laughs> there was an album that came out I think maybe a couple of years before this, it was Carlos Santana brought it out, Supernatural, and it was a load of collaborations. That is another album that is full of nailers as well, by the way. It's so good. We'll do that one day, I think, because it's such a good record. Is that got the... Sorry, sorry, I think you might be about to say this, so so no, I won't interrupt. Go on. <laughs> the one that's got smooth on it. Ah, yeah, that's what I was going to say. <laughs> I'm not going to interrupt, he says, as he's interrupting everybody else. <laughs> <laughs> The thing that comes out for me with Shiver, it's kind of trying to be a wee bit Carlos Santana and maybe trying to fit into the Latin-influenced pop that was coming through at the time. I would agree with you, James. I don't necessarily think it's a brilliant place for that song. It's not my least favourite. My least favourite son, which is track six, I think. Aye, really? Or as I call it, Streets of Rage. Aye, alright. Because it really sounds like the Streets of Rage soundtrack to me for the Mega Drive. Nice. It's just a nothing song for me. I don't remember anything about it. The intro, I'm like, oh, this is taking me back to 90s 16-bit gameplay. But apart from that, I'm like, yeah. It's not a bad tune. I don't hate it. And I don't actually hate any of the tunes on this album. 
It's an afterthought for me. That's uh, fair enough. Aye. My least favourite song on the album, and I don't know if this is just the inner hipster edgelord in me trying to make some sort of point, but I really don't like this love. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> dangerous. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's something good. It only sold 100 million copies, and Daniel's like, ah, nah. <laughs> As Superhan says in Peep Show, people like Coldplay and voted for the Nazis. You can't trust people. I fear this. Well, fair enough. <laughs> You've got me there. Folk didn't like Hitler that much. That's fair this. <laughs> I think it's more a historical thing. Like, I don't think I've ever really liked this love. I've always found it to be a bit annoying. It's got a really great catchy chorus, but listening to the rest of the album, I'm actually surprised it was even chosen as a single because I find it to be one of the least interesting songs on the album. This might be a nice segue into talking about production values, but on what's overall a very well-mixed and produced album, I actually thought this love kind of lacks the punch that I expected it to have that would push it to have more of a dance feel to it. I found, in particular, the bass to be quite quiet on this song when I thought it really should have been up front. I think I'm in the same camp as Craig. I don't think any of the songs on this album are bad, per se. There's nothing that I hate, but it could just be one of those overexposure things that every time it came on, I was like, meh. Fair enough. It's interesting you say about the mix. I think This Love is the only track on that album that sounds like it was mixed as a single. Yeah. It sounds like a radio edit. They're like, ah, right, turn up the compression and turn down the bass. They turn down the bass because it doesn't play well in car stereos. Yeah. You find that with a lot of singles, but they've compressed the hell out of it as well. I get what you're coming for because it does sound really squashed. Mm-hmm. With the rest of the songs, we've got loads of room to breathe, but I think This Love in particular has been mixed as a single because it is quite shiny and aggressive, whereas the rest of the tunes have got plenty of space room about them, so I would agree with that. Aye. I mean, it's a belter of a tune, and I disagree with everything else you said about it. <laughs> <laughs> but the production value stuff, I agree with 100%. Alright, so we've talked about what we like, we've talked about what we're not so keen on. We've mentioned about production. Without going too spoilery for part two, Big differences between this and the other one, but I suppose we should start with what kind of stands out for us. I've got a few thoughts. Me and this album go way back, right? A guy that I used to be in a band with, the first ever band I was ever in, came back to America with a copy of this on like a Walmart burn CD. Nice. And he's like, listen to this. I didn't listen to it for ages. I remember digging it out one day, but oh, I wonder what this album is. I stuck it on and I was like, oh man, this is really good. And then a couple of months later was when the re-release and it was everywhere, and I was like, oh, that's that band. I know this album quite well, and I found it. This may be apocryphal, it may not be true, but... <laughs> that's a good way to introduce anything. <laughs> <laughs> I just made it up. None of it's true. Everything's a lie, and we're all going to die soon, so forget about it. Oh, that went dark. <laughs> <laughs> Years ago, I remember playing the drums to this album. One of the things I used to do when I was in college was I had a hardcore practicing schedule. I used to practice three, four hours a day. And one of the things was once a week, I would get an album that was recorded to a really predefined click track and play along to the whole album from start to finish. And it was just to internalise a sense of time so as I was able to play with click tracks better. Mm. And it's better than just playing a click track because that's boring as hell. The more I played this album, I was like, it sounds too good. The drums, sorry, the drums, I was like, they sound too good. Done a wee bit of research and I read somewhere, and again, I can't find the source because I looked and I looked and I looked for it. Mm-hmm. It may be a fever dream that I had or something that my 16 year old mind just made up <laughs> to make reality fit, but the drums in this album are the real. Mm-hmm. Right. And Pro Tools in particular is a thing called Sound Replacer. For people that don't know, what you can do there is you can record, let's just say it's drums, right? And every part of the drum kit, snare drum, bass drum, the toms are recorded into an individual track. 
and then you can use a tool and a recording software called Pro Tools to replace the sounds. So every snare hit, the machine learning or whatever it is at the time would go in and replace it with any sound you want. It could be a cow mooing. <laughs> I don't know. A sound like a glass breaking or something like that. And they would replace it with a better snare sound, a cleaner, more sampled snare sound rather than that live kind of sound. I don't doubt that the drums were actually played on this record because they sound good enough. They're not that sort of grid-like techno beat. Aye. There's live playing elements in it, but they sound too perfect. And one of the ways that I can personally tell that this is the case, by and large, is that the drums' sounds are different on every track. Whereas normally when you record an album, the first thing that you professionally record in the studio is the drums, and everything else goes on top of it. Yeah. And to save money, they make the drums up and they play all the tunes in one or two days, and that's it, done. Mm-hmm. But every drum sound in this record, every song has a different drum sound. Mm-hmm. And that would have cost a ton of money, an absolute fortune. Because there's maybe two weeks worth of recording in that, if that's what they wanted today, which is the entire budget for a regular album of this stature. I've pointed this out to a few people over the years. The drums in that are no real. Mm-hmm. Every time I mention it, people come back to me like two weeks, like, you bastard, you've written that album for me. <laughs> but I think it's clever. I'm not taking away for anything for this in terms of production value. It's a really, really smart idea mm-hmm. because you can actually mix a song a lot better when you've got that fine a control in the parameters. It's weird for a band to have kiddie on drums. They're no kiddie on drums, but you know what I mean? Yeah. They're that manipulated, but actually it suits this music really well because it's a mixed bag in terms of its styles, like Hard Dirty Breathe is a bit heavier, and then you've got Shiver, and then you've got Jazzy Sunday Morning, and then you've got Secret, which is this really dark acoustic number. So there's quite a lot of different tunes in here that don't quite fit any sort of genre. Mm-hmm. And I think the way that they've recorded the drums and sort of heavy sample nature of all the other instruments suits it really well. But it's something to point out. It's been very, very cleverly engineered and produced for that standpoint. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad you mentioned Secret. I meant to bring it up earlier. Ballsy move to have a minute and a half's worth of intro on a tune. Aye. I was listening to it. I was like, how long is this introduction? It's like a four minute song, four and a half minutes maybe. So like 25%, give or take, of this tune is intro. Yeah. Just thought it was an interesting thing on such a poppy album to give the instruments such a prominent place. I just wanted to fling that in and Femme Dale had noticed it when they were listening. I think it's a hallmark of this album that actually the instruments get quite a decent place. That's true. Another thing about this band is they can all play. Oh, aye. Every single one of them are phenomenal musicians. Aye. The guitarist in particular, I think he spent a lot of time doing session work in Los Angeles. Right. And he's not the only one in that band that did bit of session work, and it really shows because it ain't a simple album to play. Mm-hmm. No. None of the instrumentation in this album is easy. It's good, though, because people don't talk about that. Oh, it's like pure Guns N' Roses, mad solos and stuff, but it's really subtle. The chord textures are quite complicated. It's not just your simple G, C, add 9, D. Mm-hmm. There's real chords, and there's sevenths and sharp ninths and all this guff in it as well, so it's well played. Mm-hmm. It's a complex album in terms of that. Yeah. Production-wise, Jamie, I am one of the people that you told that to in years gone by about there being no real drums on this album because I found the same thing when I was looking it up and I was doing my research on this. I was like, I can't actually see this written anywhere, so you might have actually just made it up in a fever dream. Hope so. (laughs) From looking into it and looking into the background, I found there was quite an interesting video on YouTube that was about 20 minutes worth of the band recording in the studio, just a few random clips cut together. 
actually, when I think back to it, and I could be wrong, so I was kind of half paying attention to the video just to get a feel for what the production was like. Half cut, you mean? No, no, I wish. <laughs> I don't remember any clips in that where anybody was playing the drums, just off the top of my head. However, something that did jump out and something that was causing a wee bit of not actual anger-style arguments in the studio, but just a few wee things that they were going back on forth on, was the idea of there leaving a lot of space. Now, obviously, part two of this episode is going to be Hot Fuss by The Killers, and one of the things that I think this album got really right that Hot Fuss didn't was leaving space between everything, and I think that's so, so important with funk-influenced music in particular. It's like sometimes you just want to hear the drums with a wee bit of bass on top of them. As well as that, there were a few songs where, as I was listening, vocal production stood out to me because I was going... Man, I'm sure this song either has or should have more vocals in it. There should be more backing vocals, more harmonies, whatever. And then the longer the song itself actually went on, by the time it got round to the last chorus, all of a sudden harmonies and backing vocals would start to fill in, meaning that you were getting a payoff to it, rather than it just being all systems go from the start. And I thought that was really good, because there was a few times where I kind of went, man, I can't believe they didn't put more backing vocals in there. And it was like, no, wait, they did. You just had to wait for it. Yep. And for that reason, I thought delayed gratification was something that really stood out about this album and something I really, really enjoyed about the production choices. Hmm. There was something, though, that kind of jumped out to me, and Jamie, you kind of touched on this earlier. The fact the album's called Songs About Jane, and it was largely influenced by Adam Levine's relationship with his ex-girlfriend Jane Herman. And I found this quote from him on Wikipedia, And I hope there was more to this relationship to what this quote suggests, because it makes him sound like a fucking psychopath, right? (laughs) He says, I saw this girl at a gas station and I fell in love with her. I wrote a song about her and played it in the store where she worked. It was an awful song, but she found out about this relatively psychotic boy. She was my muse for years, and then it kind of faded away. Okay. That was his quote. That was what he had to say about the girl that inspired what 12 or 13 songs that made this album. And I would hope there was more to the relationship than what he said in that particular quote. But I read that and I was like, really? That's what you're going to pin this album on? You're going to pin it on this woman who it sounds like you actually barely knew? Well, that being said, I can't actually fault it musically at all. I really, really enjoyed that. But I big, nice guy energy from Adam Levine with that quote. Aye. Jamie, in the words of Kanye West, I'm going to let you finish, but... Thanks. (laughs) (laughs) It is a solid album throughout, and something about Adam Levine that I really like, along with the rest of the band, is that he's created such a distinct voice and style for the band that means once you have heard a single song off this or any of their albums, and you go, who is that? Oh, it's Maroon 5. For years to come, every time they bring out a song, you know who it is as soon as you hear it, despite the fact that they have kind of moved into different genres and different influences. I really love when a band can create a style that as soon as you hear it, you know it's them. There's nobody else that it could possibly be. And this was obviously a great foundation for that. I think in terms of his vocal performance, you're right. I don't know of anybody really since Michael Jackson who has a powerful falsetto voice. Mm. Yeah. I know you get your Justin Timberlakes that can sing in falsetto. Falsetto, for people that don't know, is when guys sing high up in their vocal range. It's the head voice, the false voice. He's got a really powerful voice when it comes to that. I love this album. One of the reasons I love it is because I like singing along to it. Yeah. 
because he's not got a dissimilar range to me. I've got quite a high range as well. He's got a much, much, much better range than me, but he has a super powerful performance in that range, which is really hard for a guy today. Mm-hmm. You're right, though. He's got this style that's hard to match, and I can't really think of anybody that's got power in a pop sensibility anyway. Mm-hmm. It's quite a bold move for a guy with a voice that high to really make a thing about it rather than being like, oh, I can sing really low and then sing really high. He's like, all right, I'm gone for it all the time. Mm. Yeah. On the subject of Adam Levine, I would like to talk a wee bit more about how much of a nutcase that guy is. Right. Like a full-blown nut job. Please go ahead. <laughs> I'm happy to hear it. <laughs> There's a few things about it, right? I'm going to preface this by saying that Adam Levine is one of the Lord's most beautiful creations. Right. <laughs> He's a nice guy to look at, right? He's got the hangs, what do you call them? The lower abs, the V-shape, abs, hang, hang. Eyes? Vabs, they're called. No, I know. They're called cum gutters, that's what they're called. <laughs> <laughs> he's got a set of them, right? He's got all tattoos and that. He's got nice hair and nice teeth and he's loaded in that, right? But he's a fruit loop. Excellent. And his Wikipedia page goes into some of the details. Daniel's kind of hinted at it before. He's wrote a full album about some lassie that he didn't know for that long, I, I don't imagine. He got divorced for his first wife because he couldn't stop cheating on her. And apparently, he said in court, and there is stuff to this, I'm too good looking, no to shag everything. <laughs> right. I'm like, all right, fair dues, man. All right, good for you. He's got a Wikipedia page. It's actually quite long, but he was mentioned in a lawsuit under Universal Music Publishing. They were the defendant. Right. Some security guard or former security guard that took them to court for what's called a hostile work environment. Because the amount of drugs and the amount of nefarious stuff that was going on in the studio. <laughs> he was mentioned in this lawsuit and it said about the drug use, it's Adam Levine. If he wants to come to the lobby and do a line of cocaine on the floor, it's okay. <laughs> and I'm like, how wild do you need to be to be playing coke off the desk in the lobby of skyscrapers? Aye. Aye. Just like, all right, that's just Adam. He's just bumping some fat rails, leave him alone. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like, it's great. I find it dead surprising that he's like this. Hard that the Breed's quite a heavy tune in that, but for the majority of this album, the music doesn't tell that story for me. No. Mm-hmm. There's bands that I would listen to that I'd be like, aye, you definitely take coke. Aye, Motley Crue or something. Aye, like Motorhead or the Ramones or Pistols or whatever. I find it strange. I don't find it unbelievable because a lot of money when you're a relatively young, good-looking individual can take these things to you. But I'm a wee bit surprised that they're a, a wild bunch. I had them doing this quite kind of clean living individuals in my head, so it's quite interesting. The rest of them might be. Aye, well, aye, aye. But Adam Levine is a bit of a nut job. And you know what? Good for him. He's living his best life. It looks like he's into shagging stuff, so power to him. <laughs> if he's not harming anybody. Aye, wiring. Aye. I wanted to make a wee point just about the production, particularly his falsetto thing and the point you were making, Jamie, about the high falsetto. There's moments on this album where he reminds me dead of Tom York for Radiohead. Mm. Obviously, Tom York's got a different kind of style and a lot more modelling than these guys stylistically with the music. Particularly on She Will Be Loved, there's a track on OK Computer called Letdown. And it is a bit of a letdown, to be honest. It's not my favourite of that album. <laughs> Appropriately named. I see what you've done there. I try and be as clever as I can, do you know what I mean? <laughs> there was definite musical similarities there between those two tunes just when I was listening. In terms of the actual use of the falsetto voice, I think Tom York's probably his only contemporary, really. That was the only guy I thought, he can compete. He's up there. Mm -hmm. I would argue maybe even that Adam Levine's got more control in his voice. Yeah. And gets more air behind the notes, whereas Tom York tends to be a lot more delicate. 
and finds it more difficult to replicate live, I think, sometimes. Aye, I would probably say similar to what Jamie said. It's the power that sets Adam Levine apart. Aye. No, that's fair. The last thing I wanted to say, I've mentioned this long and weary on this podcast, I like a group of songs that sound like they belong together. Mm-hmm. To me, that's what an album really is. You've obviously mentioned, Jamie, about the stylistic changes, the different drum sounds. Every song on this album's got its own wee personality, which I don't hate. I quite like that, that they've taken real time to pay attention to detail and to make each song sound like it's got its own wee thing and it's been crafted in a unique way. But it's the one thing that maybe lets this album down for me a wee bit production-wise is that it kind of takes it into the territory of sounding like a collection of songs rather than a cohesive album. I'm going to throw that out there and see what you think about it, but that's how it struck me. I kind of agree with you. It is quite obvious that the tracks sound different in terms of their genre, if you will. But I think the thing that glues them together quite well is the production value. Mm-hmm. It holds it under the same umbrella. And it's difficult for me to think of another album that's this successful or that good that has loads of different tracks on it in terms of the style. You know, it chops and changes. There's a puncture in one minute and then a jazz tune the next. And I'm not saying that that's what this album is like, but it does have quite a lot of different songs in it. There's a good 40% mixture of ballads in this album, which is quite weird for an album that sold that many copies. Mm-hmm. I think it's held together with the production value. It's quite good that there's a variety in the tunes. And to me, actually, it feels more like an album for that. It's telling a story as opposed to being like, here's 10 indie bangers. Have at it. Aye. It feels more crafted like an album to me. And I really appreciate that because we've said that we're all album guys. It's not just, oh, I listen to the top 40 and then I go to my bed. We like an album, we like a good start to finish. And to me, this is a dead, dead good, really recent example of a really well put together album. Mm. And I feel like the style changes in it. To me, it tells me a story than being like a mixed bag of stuff that's chucked together, if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. Right. It's two different sides of the same coin, I suppose. It depends how you take it. Yeah. I think it does flow really well. I think it comes into that category similar to, not musically, but remember what we were saying about the Wu-Tang Clan album, where it's like once you listen to one song on this album, you kind of want to just go back and listen for the start and do the full thing. Mm-hmm. I do really, really like it that way. I do think it is quite a mixed bag, but I agree with you, Jamie. It kind of benefits from that. It does flow. Something that came up during my research, and I'm just going to say it now because I don't know when we'll ever get a chance to talk about it again, Weirdly, on three songs on this album, there is backing vocals from Rashida Jones. No way. Who is not known for being a musician, primarily. Mm. She is known for being an actress from The Office and Parks and Rec. Mm-hmm. And I know her from the film I Love You, Man, which made me very, very disappointed because the full time I was listening to this album, after finding that out, I was kind of going, man, all I can picture is that this album is actually Paul Rudd playing the bass. <laughs> or slapping the bass, to be more accurate. And when I found out that that wasn't the case, it kind of put me off the album a wee bit. Rashida Jones sings backing vocals on... I'm just going to double-check what songs. She sings backing vocals on Tangled, Secret, and Not Coming Home. If you're a fan of The Office, Parks and Rec, or I Love You, Man, you can go back and listen to Rashida Jones before she done any of those things, singing backing vocals in Maroon 5. Mm. I've got some interest in Rashida Jones' facts. <laughs> right okay one of them relates directly to this there's a female voice that talks at the end of Sunday morning mm-hmm. just a subtle couple of words I think she says something like I'm leaving or something like that that's who says it Rashida Jones as far as I'm aware oh, yeah. oh wow it's really subtle it's in the fade out it's quite cool it's quite nice actually 
And second one is Quincy Jones has heard that. That's right. Oh, she's wild. Well, fuck. I didn't know that. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Well, you've one upped my things you know about Rashida Jones. Aye. <laughs> <laughs> Doubled. I know. That's you, mate. Round you can we do an I Love You Man watch along podcast? Not right now, just one day. <laughs> I've never seen it, so aye. <laughs> I was saying one of my pals, she's never seen Still Game. What? Which is like a capital offence. I know she loves The Office, you know, the American Office. Yeah. Which I have never seen. Aye. Oh, it's great. I've started it recently, it's good. Every time I mention this, folks say it to me, but I had said to her during the week, why don't we do a podcast where I watch an episode of The Office and you watch an episode of Still Game and then we come back and talk about it and we'll see how it goes. I don't think it's going to happen, but Emma, if you're listening to this, hit me up. You should definitely do that. I would absolutely listen to that. <laughs> we shall see. There's well more episodes of The Office than there are of Still Game, though. That might be the only problem. I think you might be right. That's fine. Two at a time. Who cares? <laughs> back on track. Sorry, Craig. <laughs> no, I like a wee digression now and again. That's totally fine. And aside. Final thoughts then, before obviously we get on to part two and start the compare and contrast thing, is there anything that we've maybe no said about this album that we think is worth saying? For me, it really exceeded my expectations. Now, I've heard Jamie talk about this album for years and how great it is. And to me, I thought it was going to be like a great pop album as far as just being an album that's really, really solid as far as pop music goes. But I actually think this album isn't really a pop music album in the traditional sense. I think there's a lot more influences of the funk and soul that we don't see as traditionally in the mainstream as we maybe did years and years ago. It kind of blew me away a bit, even though it's not necessarily my thing and my genre overall. As I say, it was one of them where I was quite happy to listen to the full album start to finish. It never felt like a chore at any point, so I thoroughly enjoyed it. It's a sneaky bugger, isn't it? Aye, absolutely. It's like type one pop music. I wrote a lot about this, actually. You You get pop music that's popular because it's good, and then you get pop music that's popular because it's been manufactured to be popular. Mm -hmm. And I like to think that that is the former. It was popular because it was really good as opposed to it was made to be good. Yeah. But no, you're right, it's a sneaky one. But in terms of other thoughts, I've wrote down a few things, but the one I'm going to talk about, which relates directly to The Killers, and again, this is my opinion, everything that they have done since this album is guff. (laughs) (laughs) Nothing that they have done since, with the exception of a couple of good singles, could hold a candle to this album. Yeah. Yeah. I have the same opinion of The Killers since their debut album, which is good, I suppose, because we're talking about both of them. Uh In terms of Maroon 5, nothing holds a candle to this album that they've done since. Yeah. It is a topper of an album. Like Daniel said, I've been talking about it for years. It was a sleeper hit in more than one regard. It's been an album that I didn't really expect to stay with me for as long. Mm-hmm. But I go back to it quite regularly. I have played many of these songs off this album in cover bands and stuff, so I know it inside out, you know, by and large. Mm-hmm. It's a great album. I love it. Yeah. And I agree with you, Jamie. I don't think they've ever hit these heights, and I don't think they will again. There was brilliant albums around about this time. The other one that's coming into my head for around about this era was the Scissor Sisters debut album. Oh, another belter. Again, pop record, by and large. Loads of ballads, some really nice slow songs on there. But good for the sake of being good, rather than the sake of making money. But still did phenomenally well. Some big, big singles came off that album. I would put this in the same thing. Mix of genres, something for everybody. But not in a way that you feel it's lost the flavour, it's lost that core of the musicianship, for one thing. That word we go back to, that authenticity. There's a real attempt to make something that's going to last and that's going to challenge people, but also take a really prominent place in the pop genre, which it did at the time. It was huge. Yep. Yeah. 
I absolutely agree with you. They've never replicated this. And they're probably richer for it. Mm-hmm. Maybe not as well respected as they could have been. I hate the term sold out. I hate it so much. Ah, it's not a thing. And I kind of understand it, I suppose, in terms of after this record, they started writing pop songs, whereas this record was popular off the back of the songs that they wrote. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think you're right. They won't replicate the success of this in terms of its musicality, but they've definitely replicated its success in terms of units sold. Oh, aye. Because they've had several top five best-selling singles in any given year since. In terms of musicality, they're not going to be able to look back onto that one. Similar to the Pearl Jam and Mother Love Bone thing, they were kind of born out of an indie pop band's demise, weren't they? Was it Cara's Flowers they were called? Aye, and two of the tracks on this album were Cara's Flowers songs. Tangled was one of them. Mm -hmm. And there was another one that was a Cara's Flowers holdback, and they recorded them for that album. That was an indie band gone awry and then just turned into some sexy wee jazzy band for the valley. Aye, on the topic of the whole selling out debate, I don't think Maroon 5 give one single fuck what people think about whether they sold out or not. No. I think they're probably quite happy to be like, yeah, you're right, we did. We sold out every single arena that we've ever been to since this album came out. Oh, aye. Who cares? Aye. The only people that care about bands selling out are people that will never be in the position to do it. Aye, 100%. Aye. So get it around them. Principles are for sale. I'm just having a wee quick look at how many albums they've sold since it came out. It doesn't look like anything sold as many albums in terms of worldwide. Mm-hmm. They have albums now. No, I know. Nothing's came close to the amount of certifications it's got. It was certified platinum seven times in the UK Jeez. and four times in the US. Yeah, that's huge. And none of the rest of them have came in terms of critical success, but actually they've sold an absolute buttload of records, particularly in the US. The UK, songs about Jane sold 2 million and five 600,000 in every other country, but a lot of the rest of them are selling. They're shifting multiple millions, so good for them. Yeah. Aye, sell it. I'll take their money. Aye, <laughs> <laughs> 100%. Oh, aye. And I mean, it's not as if they were Black Flag. No. And it wasn't like they were doing something that alternative to start out with. Aye, they're no Led Zeppelin. <laughs> aye. This is something that, as we go through these episodes, our listeners will learn this about me if they don't already. I'm a big band name guy. I like a band name to mean something and to tell you a wee bit about that whole it does what it says on the tin thing. Some of the guys we've covered already, like Wu-Tang Clan, you know, there's Hunters in that. Manic Street Preachers, there's Hunters in that. Joy Division, NWA as well, obviously. Although it's a wee bit starker maybe than some of the other groups. Mm-hmm. What do you think of Maroon 5 as a band name? Whenever I hear this band's name, I get transported back to watching, there was a channel called MTV Rocks and Zane Lowe used to present a show on that called Gonzo and the idea of having something called Gonzo on MTV is kind of ironic in itself but Zane Lowe was interviewing Quentin Tarantino once and asked him what kind of music are you listening to these days and this is the words he said, he said, I quite like the Maroon Boy 5. (laughs) (laughs) So whenever I hear Maroon 5, I automatically think the Maroon Boy 5. That's probably the only thoughts I have on their band name. I think it's an alright name, but I the Maroon Boy 5 is what I think. I think it's one of the band names that doesn't really mean anything until the success. Yeah. You think about them in the context of like a brand name, not a band name. Uh-huh. Aye. I've always had that opinion of a lot of bands. Their name could be Guff, man. See, as long as they're selling tunes, doesn't it matter. 
There's loads of bands out there that we absolutely terrible names. Mm-hmm. My Chemical Romance. Aye, but then when you look at how successful they've been, that doesn't really matter. You don't think about it anymore. You're just like, oh, that's just the band's names. Aye. It's not a particularly exciting band name. I mean, it's no like The Killers. I imagine there's 400 bands out there that are raging that The Killers stole their band name. Aye. <laughs> Aye. Hundreds of you boys in garages all across the UK and the US going, bastards. They stole their band name. <laughs> I can't believe it was 2004 before a band came out with an album called The Killers. Yeah. There definitely was weird. Oh, one other thing that I want to mention while we're on Maroon 5. No offence, but you might be too old to appreciate this. All right. <laughs> yeah, <cheeky wee> bastard. <laughs> <laughs> when I was young, I used to watch CBBC. And one of the most popular shows on CBBC was the story of Tracy Beaker, yes. inspired by the books by Jacqueline Wilson. If anybody's not seen Tracy Beaker, it's set in a foster home. And there were these three kids. I don't know if they were real siblings or if they had just always travelled together or whatever. And they were called the Wellards, as in well hard, right? They were supposed to be the kids who were a bit rough around the edges. And there's a scene in Tracy Beaker that's become a meme where Rio Wellard, who was portrayed by a guy who's actually become quite a successful actor post-Tracy Beaker, Craig Roberts. He was in the film Submarine. It was a coming-of-age film directed by Richard Ayoade, I believe. Oh, why? I thought you were going to see Rashida Jones there, but anyway, move on. No, no. (laughs) Rio Wellard comes bursting into a room and he says, all right, who's got my Maroon 5 CD? (laughs) (laughs) Superb probably a bunch of 45-year-old writers in the CBBC office going like, right, what's a current band we can write into this? <laughs> Who's cool and hip? And aye, that was what they settled on. Hello, fellow kids. <laughs> aye, exactly. You can just picture Steve Buscemi. There's several Twitter memes about this. I just googled who's got my Maroon 5 CD meme and there was a tweet that just said roses are red, there's fish in the sea and then a screen cap of Rio Wellard saying, alright, who's got my Maroon 5 CD? Beautiful. I'm pulling it up now because I am so old that I was not aware of this at all. <laughs> I don't know what a Tracy Beaker is, but here we are. She's coming back. Tracy Beaker's got a new show coming out where she's an adult. Found the meme. I thought you were saying it was like a cartoon, but there you go. It turns out it's not. It's live action. All right. Very good. No, no. Do you not even know what it is? The saddest thing for me is that I've got so old that I know kids that watch it. I've got Wayne's. I've got two kids. And I don't know what it is. Maybe it's because I don't pay them enough attention. This is getting dark tonight, isn't it? Your brains are a wee bit young to be watching Tracy Beaker, to be fair. Aye. Mate, I've got a nine-year-old. Oh, that's right. (laughs) Nah, nah. I would say Tracy Beaker was pre-teen, to be honest, going into young adult type stuff. Aye, it was, to be fair. Ah, right, okay. It was pretty heavy for that age. I it was the closest thing we had to a soap opera growing up. It was great. Too. You missed it in Biker Grove, mate. Biker Grove in Grange Hill. Aye, aye. It was probably my generation's sort of equivalent. Although Biker Grove and Grange Hill were still on at that point. Aye, nothing was as popular. Ant and Deck weren't in them, but. <laughs> well, I've gone for making you feel old to making myself feel old. I've googled it because I heard there was a Tracy Beaker thing starting back up, and there is a new show starting called My Mum Tracy Beaker. <laughs> Yes. Tracy Beaker is to be an adult. What the fuck are we talking about? Aye. How did we get here? Aye. <laughs> this is the biggest rabbit hole we've ever been doing. Right, end it before I chuck my sail out the windy. Bloody hell. I thought this episode was going to be shite as well. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, I think Maroon 5's a shite band name. I'm just going to put it in there. <laughs> right, we'll leave it at that. <laughs> I'll say no more. 
Guys, thanks for listening. We're sorry we took you down the lines a wee bit. <laughs> Hopefully you've enjoyed it and you're all away watching Tracy Beaker now instead of listening to the Maroon 5. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see you in part two and we'll talk a wee bit about the killer's debut hot fuss. Thanks for listening and we'll see you over the road. Cheers, guys. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Bye-bye.